I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. What I'd like to do today is to uh, bring a message that's an overview of the healing, the miraculous healings that Jesus performed. And we're going to look at two of those briefly in Luke chapter 7. And I'll read beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd with the town, from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So ends the reading of God's holy word. This past Friday, Barbara and I and our son Stephen were at the Scottish Rite Hospital Craniofacial Clinic in Atlanta. It's been a number of years since we'd been there, and we were there for a, a scheduled appointment for our son since he was born with a cleft lip and palate. And there's I sat in the waiting room, and it, since it's been so many years, and kind of forget what it's like, kind of watch this parade of little kids, babies, teenagers come in, with a variety of facial and head deformities and disorders which they were born with. And I thought it very providential, if not ironic, that today I was planning to preach on the miraculous healings of Jesus. Now, as a pastor, as having served as a campus minister or a pastor here for over 30 years, the thing which seems to disillusion professing believers, I think, more than anything else is what seems to be unanswered prayer. And in that realm of unanswered prayer, it is especially 
the prayers that appear to go unanswered, which we pray for others or for ourselves, requesting healing from God, and it doesn't happen. Just this past week, I was meeting with a group of guys in a journey group, and I asked them, what's y'all's questions when it comes to miraculous healing? And pretty much everyone spoke up at once and said it's just a mystery as to why some are healed and some are not. And one of the members of the group told of a, his home church, a large church here in Georgia, where a child, a five-year-old, was sick with leukemia. And the family and the church, the congregation of the church, prayed fervently for this child's healing for two years. And then the child died. And he said that the effect on the church and especially on the immediate family was just devastation. Not just the devastation of the grief of losing this loved one, but the bitter disillusionment of seemingly unanswered prayers. When our son Stephen was born over 15 years ago, I began studying this topic of miraculous healing. And one of the privileges I have as a pastor of this church is I get to spend personal time normally with guest preachers and teachers that we have here. And so I would ask these uh, teachers and older ministers if they could recommend to me things to read written on this subject from a Reformed perspective. In other words, from a perspective that believes in the sovereignty of God. When John Piper was here and his wife, Noelle, and we were eating breakfast at our house, I asked him, what do you recommend? And he said, I can't really recommend anything, but I'll tell you, every bit of literature will be divided into one of two categories. And those two categories, are they will either teach that God is in control or that we are in control. And he said, that will be where the division is. Well, ultimately, I was told of a book by Henry Frost, small little book entitled Miraculous Healing. It was first published in 1931. It is a brief book. It is only 125 brief pages. In fact, this past week, I found the entire text being on the internet. You don't even have to buy it. It's just there. Several of the observations I'll make today were strongly influenced by that book. I have read it, I have reread it, I see things each time I read it that I didn't see before. And I think we can assume that all healing is divine. That is, all healing is from God, whether it's through surgeons or medicine or medical care. But not all healing is miraculous. So when some people say, do you believe in divine healing, I'd say, yes, all healing is ultimately from God. But miraculous healing is different. The miraculous healings in the New Testament always had three characteristics. They were immediate, they were complete, and they were final. The person did not get sick again with the same thing a month later. So let's look at two immediate, complete, and final healings here in the ministry of Jesus. Just brief, brief review of what we read from Luke 7. First, we have a situation with a soldier and his servant who is sick. This is about the soldier's faith. He is a high-ranking Roman soldier. He had a servant who was sick. In fact, this servant was deathly sick. And the man's reputation is stellar among people. Uh, the racism that was so prevalent of that day 
involved a mutual hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles, but especially toward the occupying forces of the Romans. This man is a Roman. And so here's this Gentile Roman soldier, yet his reputation among the Jews is stellar. Verse 4 says they highly regarded this man. The man is humble. He tells Jesus that he is not worthy to have Jesus come into his house. But he has great faith. And he says all that Jesus needs to do is to say the word and his servant will be healed. This man knows you don't even need to see him in person. You don't even need to come into my house. You just say the word and it will happen. Jesus is impressed with this man. He's so impressed that he gives the highest compliment to his faith and says, I've not even seen such faith among God's people. And he returns to his house, the man does, and he finds that his servant has been healed. That's the first instance. The second instance happens a distance from there. This miraculous healing takes place in the small Galilean town of Nain. And a widow's only son is being carried to the cemetery. And not only is a large crowd, tells us, with Jesus as they come down the road, but this, semi, this uh, funeral procession also has a very large crowd with it. Verse 13 tells us Jesus sees this and he has compassion on the widow. And he tells her, do not weep. Then he touches the stand that's the pallet type thing, the coffin's being carried on, and he says to the corpse, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he does. And the reaction of the crowd is overwhelming. It mentions there's fear, but that fear is being overwhelmed, and they exclaim that God has been at work. They know they have seen God's hand at work right there in their midst. And there's a very important statement that comes at the end, I guess in verse 17. And it says that when those who had been sent returned, they found the servant well. I'm sorry, verse 17. This report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. That is a very important statement. Now, what I want to do is, is unusual in the way I teach the Bible. And I want to give you now just an overview. Rather than going phrase by phrase through this passage, I want to give you an overview about the miraculous healing ministries of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, what are miracles? In the Bible, there are, there are a variety of words that are used to describe things that we call miracles. Uh, wonders, the words uh, signs, mighty acts powers, and the word miracles. All those words show up in the Bible. And those words are used to describe activities or acts which are carried out by the Lord, which are obviously not of human origin. They are not the deeds of men. And these miracles through the Old Testament and into the New Testament serve to point out and to highlight God's activity and to leave no doubt to those who saw them that the action is different than anything humans or false gods could produce. That was the purpose behind miracles. Miracles in the Bible were always supernatural, not anti-natural. What I mean by that is, for example, when God parted the Red Sea, the scriptures say, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night long. So it was supernatural, but not anti-natural in the things that happened. 
The miracles in the Old Testament typically serve the purpose of bearing testimony to Yahweh's power and to distinguish him from the multitude of the false gods which the various cultures worshipped. Generally speaking, when God raised up new prophets who were sent to Israel, they were confirmed to the people. Their appointments were made clear by new miracles that were done to lend credibility to these, their prophetic messages. Now we come to the New Testament. Miracles in the New Testament primarily attested to the reality that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the Redeemer, the one who had been prophesied about. He was the Redeemer who had come in the flesh. So the miracles of Jesus primarily were to validate who he was and his message. For example, a few weeks ago we looked at the the uh, healing of the paralyzed man that was lowered through the roof that his friends had brought him there. The purpose of that miracle is not just to wow the crowds or not even just to heal this man. It was to show that Jesus was God and had authority to forgive sins. Let me give you an overview then of Jesus' healing ministry. His public ministry lasted a little over three years. Now, during those three years, we know that during the first year of his public ministry, he only performed two miracles. During the second and third year, he performed at least 35 miracles. So he multiplied, and how rapid these things come in the second and third year. Even the Bible itself says, though, that he did many other things like this that they did not include in Scripture. So at least 35 happened within that second and third year. No Old Testament prophet came even close to performing that many miracles. Most of his miracles had to do with the human body, either from the standpoint of providing food or of healing disease or of casting out demons, making the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. It's an interesting observation. Christ did not perform a single miracle in judgment upon people. He never called out fire to destroy something or someone. He never struck anyone dead on the spot. Instead, what we see as we see it in these two, in these two instances is that compassion dominated pretty much all of the miracles. But compassion was not his primary motivation. And to me, this is the crux of the issue which leads to a lot of disappointment today. The main purpose in Jesus' miracles, and primarily the healing miracles, was to establish the fact that he was the promised Messiah. That was the purpose. And that's very important to understand. Because if compassion, if the compassion of Christ was the main purpose that he had in performing miracles, then we can argue, well, there is as much suffering today as there was then, and there is as much need for God's compassion as there was in the past. Therefore, why isn't God doing miracles like that today? That's the crux of the issue, folks. I think that leads to a lot of disappointment. But the main objective Christ had before him was to prove that he was the Messiah. And since that was the case... We have to conclude then that the need for such miracles has now passed away. They were done to show that he was the Messiah. We don't need that to be demonstrated for us today. 
So in the healings of Jesus, we see that they were related to the diseases which were beyond the powers of physicians at that time to heal, such as blindness and deafness and paralysis and leprosy. And he chose primarily to heal those people whom men could not heal. And he chose those cases which would especially show forth his preeminent power as compared to man's weakness. That's why we have no instances in the Bible where Jesus did what people could do for themselves. There's no instances of him setting broken bones or filling decayed teeth or correcting impaired vision or to take away simple headaches. One author put it this way, It is a great principle with God that he allows men in all things to do for themselves and their fellow men what they can do. And he usually steps in only when their ability and power have come to an end. Now, one thing that's very important is to see Christ's sovereignty in his ministry. It is impossible to begin to understand the miraculous healings done by Jesus without coming face to face with the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God. For those that may not know that term, it states that God is in control over all things, the big events and even the tiny, most minutest details of your life and my life. The sovereignty of God is not a doctrine that appeals to the natural man. In fact, it often repels us. We resist the thought of surrendering our lives into the hands of another, even if that other is God. But whether you believe in God's sovereignty or not, it doesn't change the fact that he is sovereign. Daniel chapter 4 says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And we should be glad. We should be glad. Otherwise, there'd be nothing but chaos all the time. So for a few moments, what I'd like to do is is lead you on a brief study of the sovereignty of Christ that we see in his birth and in his life and in his healing ministry. For example, Christ was sovereign in respect to the time when he was born on earth. If you think about the creation of man and then the incarnation of Jesus, Christ becoming a man, during that time, during all that period of time, generations of men, women, and children lived and died. Millions and millions of men and women and children, and we can assume that the majority of those during their lifetimes developed physical infirmities, and with the exception of two, Enoch and Elijah, they eventually all died. And yet in all those thousands of years, that period of time that took place, Christ remained in glory. He looked down upon this limitless pain, and from a practical, miraculous standpoint, it would appear as though he did nothing to alleviate it with miraculous healings, that is. So we could say that the vast majority of people lived and died without any more medical and surgical help than what the human physicians at that time could give them. Of course, we know according to Galatians 4, Christ came at the fullness of time. But that time was chosen by God. 
We didn't take a vote on it. Second, Christ was sovereign in the race to which he was born. We can't give any human reason as to why Jesus should be born a Jew. We can give, or we know that there are divine reasons. There were prophecies, there were promises, but God did not consult us in the manner about the matter of whether Jesus would be a Jew or not. That was their sovereign choice. So the scriptures before us show us a virgin who was descended from Abraham and David, and hence they present Jesus the heir, the seed of David and the heir of David's throne. Third, Christ was sovereign in the choice of where he was born and where he lived. There's no human reason why he needed to be born in Palestine. In fact, even at that time in history, the Jews were were widely scattered. And history tells us that many of the most educated and the wealthiest and most influential Jews did not live in Palestine at the time. So we could have argued or suggested or believed that, well, it'd be better if he was born in Rome or Alexandria or Babylon. Instead, his birthplace was in this little village of Bethlehem. But then again, God was sovereign. And Christ did not ask our opinion of where he should be born. It was a case of divine sovereign choice. Fourth, we see that Christ was sovereign in the places where he visited. We don't know all the details, but from what we can tell in the Gospels, Jesus traveled mostly on the main roads in the areas of Galilee and Judea, specifically between the two cities of Capernaum and Jerusalem. That was primarily where he traveled. So he visited only a very small part of the area called Palestine, and so most of the world's population at the time never saw him, never touched him, never heard his voice. In other words, Christ sovereignly chose where he would travel and where he would demonstrate his miraculous power. He was the master of his own plans, and never once do we have him asking the disciples what he should do next. He was continually sovereign in where he went. Fifth, he was sovereign as to the people whom he healed. Since he did not go everywhere, he did not heal everyone. He showed mercy to some, and he withheld it from others. At the most, at the most, Christ healed a few thousand people. And that's probably a high number. Now that was a tiny fraction of the population of Palestine, which at that time probably numbered three million The population of the entire world at that time was 800 million. So in other words, if compassion was the main primary motivation for Jesus' healing acts, then his life and ministry, since he only healed a few thousand out of 800 million, it makes his life and ministry look like a failure, or at least not very effective. So it brings us back to God's sovereignty. Because his chief motivation in his healings was not compassion, although that was included. But it was the setting forth of his divine person and power, and he sovereignly chose the time and place and people and individuals best suited for that manifestation. Also, Christ was sovereign in the conditions which he imposed upon men as a means of physical healing. Now, if you pick up some of the literature by some of the more popular uh, miraculous healing uh, teachers today, uh, the late Kenneth Hagin, uh, Benny Hinn, 
even last night I heard Joel Osteen, I was walking through and the TV was on, and I heard him say, well, you don't need to dwell on, you need to claim your healing. Don't, oh, it's, it was a wretched uh, statement. Don't dwell on your cancer, dwell on the answer. I rolled my eyes and kept walking. But here's what you will hear. Here's what you will hear, that several conditions must be met before healing can take place. Here they are. First, you must be a Christian. Second, you must confess your sin. Third, you must be anointed with oil. Fourth, you must believe, not in general, but in particular, by putting your faith in Christ as the healer. And sixth, and this, you must accept healing. And finally, you must act as if you are healed, believing that one is healed as one so acts. I don't have time to go back and re-explain all that. We see no such formula like that in Jesus' ministry of healing. None. On the contrary, whether there was salvation or not, whether there was holiness or absence of holiness, whether there was strong faith or no faith, the boy in the coffin had no faith, folks. He was dead. He met no condition on that road. Christ dispenses healing according to his sovereign grace and purpose. And his purpose was to demonstrate his deity and the healing of the unjust and the just showed he was the Messiah. Christ was sovereign in the limitations which he put upon himself in his acts of healing. He could have done anything and everything, but nothing in the scriptures is clearer than the fact that he did not do anything and everything. For instance, he could have said, you will live to be 500 years old. He could have lengthened the lives of his apostles or anyone else he chose to do so, but there's nothing like that in the New Testament. He also did not deliver those whom he healed from further infirmities. For all who were healed eventually did die. Lazarus eventually died. This boy being carried to his grave, eventually did die. In fact, the things in which Jesus did not do are as remarkable as what he did. But that was his sovereign choice. Last of all, about the sovereignty of Christ, he was sovereign in healing only those who were in immediate contact with him. And this is very important. There are two exceptions to this that we have recorded in the Gospels. Two exceptions where he heals someone that was not in his presence. One is right here, this centurion's son in Luke chapter 7. And then we have another of this nobleman who lived in Capernaum who had a son who was lying sick at death. In both those instances, Jesus healed them, though he was not in their presence. You know what that tells us? It tells us he could have healed everybody on the planet if he had wanted to. Jesus could have spoken the word and 800 million people would have been healed if they had needed it. But he did not do that. He could have healed at any distance throughout the world, but he did not do so. That was his sovereign choice. So the reality is most of the world was left untouched with his healing power with countless people being sick and dying of those illnesses. So Jesus was sovereign and he is sovereign. Now I understand why John Piper said, you'll see that everything boils down to who's in control. Us? that we demand of God, that if we have our formula, that if we just do this certain things, that God will bring healing? Or is God sovereignly in control? Now, here are some of my personal observations. 
And my purpose today is not to deal with the other texts in the Bible that talk about healing, but I'll deal with one of those here. I would urge you, by way of application, to recognize all healing is from God, whether by medicines, whether by doctors, uh, or by prayer alone. And give thanks to God for all types of healing. If you heal up okay after a surgery, thank the Lord. That's nice that you had a great surgeon. It's nice that you had great nurses and great medicine. But that was God who brought the healing. Let's acknowledge that rather than acting like he's not involved in things that don't seem miraculous. Second, realize the greatest healing is spiritual healing, is salvation. How do we compare an eternity with God compared to a healing that may have lasted a number of years in this life, and that was all that there was if the person did not have life with God? The greatest healing is spiritual healing. Third, we should pray for ourselves when we get sick. And we should enlist the prayers of others, especially the elders. James 5, James chapter 5 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you come to the prayer gathering tonight and after it's finished, if you say, Chip, I'd like for you and some of the elders to pray with me, we will do that. It is interesting here that the burden to call for them is put on the person who is sick. So let us know. We can't read minds, you know, if you want prayer by the elders. And sometimes God does amazing things. Dan Doriani is a professor at Covenant Seminary and a pastor of a local church in St. Louis. Dan preached here. He taught here several times years ago. It's been a number of years since he was last with us. And we had him speak at a church retreat one day, one weekend. And he and I were, during the retreat time, we had a, I think we had a bonfire or something. And our, our son, we were praying for him, and Dan and I got talking about healing. We're standing by the bonfire, and we're having this personal conversation. And he says, let me tell you what happened to me not too long ago when I was down in Florida. And he said, I, I went to speak at a church, and afterwards the pastor said, look, we're going to go over and pray with a man in our church who's dying of cancer. I mean, he's really, really sick. He's his stages are such, he's, he's, he's close to dying. And so Dan said after the service that night, they went to this man's house, and he said that he and the elders gathered around this man, and the pastor, as he put it, gave God every out imaginable before the prayer. <laughs> he didn't have any more expectation that anything was going to happen. It was like, Lord, we know you're a sovereign control. We know this, but he... It was a very weak prayer when it comes to faith. Dan said, I didn't have any special faith. I was just along there, and we were there. We gathered around this man. We put our hands on him, and as Dan said, Chip, my arms got so hot, I didn't know what was happening. I never experienced it before or after, but I took my hands off, and we finished the prayer, and I said, we don't need to pray for his healing. We need to thank God this man has just been healed, and he was healed of that cancer. Now, he said, if you try to say we had to have a lot of faith, we didn't. He said, I didn't. The pastor certainly didn't. He said, I heard his words. Uh, it's not that the man did. God just sovereignly acted because he chose to do so. No formula. Now, as we pray, we should realize God is my heavenly father. He's your heavenly father in Christ. He loves me, and he will ultimately do what is best for his glory and our good. But he never leaves us alone. I think there's miraculous grace often when there's not miraculous healing. And to see how God sustains our faith and our love for others during hard times. And it leaves the same effect on people as though you'd been healed, which is awe. 
God is definitely here. Is Rosemary Thomas here? I'm going to tell something. I, I tried to call. She must be out of town. When her husband, Bob, a few years ago, died of cancer, and many of us, over that 18-month or so journey with him, and he had a esophageal cancer, it's a long, slow death, with surgeries and all sorts of things trying to help. In one of my last conversations while he was still lucid at his house with him, when we knew the end was near, he said, Chip, if I had it to do over, I'd do it exactly the same way. I'd go through the same thing. Well, I didn't mean to be irreverent, but I'm like, yeah, right. That's the expression I had on my face. You'd go through this again? And I think he could tell. I didn't believe him. He said, I'm serious. I would go through exactly the same thing because of the time I've had with my family and because of what God has taught me. Now, you see what's happening there? That was miraculous pouring out of grace, though there wasn't miraculous healing. It was obvious to me, God is here. God has been at work. It was the same result. Two other observations, I know I'm past time. The time of full healing of all diseases permanently is still in the future, but it will happen. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we often hear the first part of that verse, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. It goes on in the description of the new heaven and the new earth, and it says, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There will be no sickness in heaven. We won't have prayers for the sick in heaven. Last of all, trust God in your sickness. I think it was the first verses I ever memorized in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Remember God's love. Remember that even in the midst of suffering, the Lord is in control, and he has not abandoned you. Let's pray together. Father, no area humbles us when we see how small we are is the sovereignty that you exercise over this world. Lord, there are those among us, and we prayed. We have prayed for them. They prayed for themselves or other family members. We ask you to give us a proper understanding of your miraculous healings. Uh, Lord, we're often uh, disillusioned at times when prayers appear to go unanswered, but they're really not. We pray that we would be wise, and we would pray that we would be dependent on you and thankful in all situations. Bless those here who suffer. Bless the caregivers, many of others, of elderly parents or disabled children and sustain them, and may they have your grace poured out upon their lives, uh, even as we see poured out on so many here in Scripture. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.